Welcome back to the program. If we have problems in America today, the solution is usually pretty simple. Just check in with the founding fathers. Can't figure out modern health care? Check with the founders. Can't deal with modern weaponry on America's streets? Check with the nation's founders. Need to improve education for our kids? Well, maybe a trip to Mount Rushmore will solve it. Need to fix our airports? Increase cancer and genetic research? Or fund manned space travel? No problem. Just check in with Jefferson and Hamilton. Obviously, a laughable idea. But in fact, this is exactly what we seem to do. First of all, our founders, wise as they were, did not speak with a single voice. And they lived in a world that is barely recognizable for our own today. So why are they relevant to every single debate in America? Mostly because it's a way for politicians to gain political traction without having to marshal real debate or real solutions. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, David Seahot. He's an associate professor of history at Georgia State University. His previous book is The Myth of America's Religious Freedom, and it is my pleasure to welcome David Seahot back to this program to talk about his new book, The Jefferson Rule, How the Founding Fathers Became Infallible and Our Politics Inflexible. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. It's interesting that this idea of looking to the founders for every solution is not something that has been continuous in the history of this country. In fact, you talk about the fact that that after the Civil War, it wasn't even talked about at all. This is a more modern phenomenon. Talk about that first. Yeah, I mean, it was. it's interesting because people did refer, politicians especially, referred to the founders leading up to the Civil War. But... Um, well, and in, and in large measure, the, the 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 war itself was fought over the authority of the founders. I mean, slavery was part of it, of course, uh, but North and South they they viewed uh, either the Confederacy or in, in the North the the United States as they understood it, as established by the founding fathers, and they they went into war uh, with both sides, siding the founders. And so after the war. Uh, many politicians kind of stopped because they realized that, um, you know, the, the founders' rhetoric, rhetoric can be kind of dangerous. It takes uh, policy disputes that maybe have different um, policy solutions, and it converts those disputes into more fundamental principles um, and more fundamental uh, disagreements that are, that are harder to tolerate. And so uh, what we see is that founders' rhetoric kind of declined after the war up through um, the early 20th century, and then it came back as uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt began to uh, uh, pursue the New Deal. What was it in the pursuit of the New Deal and in the opposition to the New Deal, really, that reignited this discussion about the founders and and what they intended? Well, Roosevelt was an interesting political figure because he was um, uh, part of really progressivism. Progressivism had shaped his his political outlook. And uh, progressives largely rejected the founding fathers and they rejected the relevance of the founding fathers uh, because they believed that the nation had changed so much that what what was needed for progress they believed was a kind of 
um, a transformation of American government. And so when Roosevelt came into office, he was pursuing this progressive transformation, um, and, and in his case, to address the realities of the New Deal. And many of the wealthy of the time became very alarmed by Franklin Roosevelt. And in particular, they, they, they came to believe the New Deal was a, a move towards socialism. And they banded together in this group called the American Liberty League. And, um, and this group is really interesting. I, I was digging around in in archives, and I found some of the planning documents for this group. And um, and the, the 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 leadership, frankly, admitted that they wanted to change the Constitution. They wanted to remove the Sixteenth Amendment, which allowed for an income tax that they believed was a step towards socialism, that and that of course hurt them more than than others, them being the wealthy. Uh, but they they decided that in in fighting. Uh, the New Deal, that they were not going to refer to their primary goals. Instead, they said, we're going to talk about the Constitution and we're going to talk about the Founding Fathers. And when they did that, uh, suddenly Roosevelt felt under attack and he changed and he himself began to talk about the Founding Fathers as well. And the disputes then over the New Deal became not about whether the New Deal accurately, you know, um, or, or adequately addressed the Great Depression. It was whether or not the New Deal was in line with the vision of the Founding Fathers, as both sides understood it. But in the way that both sides understood it, both were kind of an invention unto themselves, that in fact, the Founding Fathers, as they're often referred to today, and as they're often credited with various things today, are a kind of modern day invention of what we perceive the Founding Fathers to have said or done or been. Yeah, that's what's so extraordinary. The, um, you know, when, when Roosevelt began rolling out elements of the New Deal, and, we, and when, we, when we speak of the New Deal, we, we speak of uh, a variety of laws passed from 1933, when Roosevelt entered into office, up through about 1937. And then from that point on, it's sort of an idea. It's the modern welfare state and, and so on. And when the court in 1934 and 1935 began to strike down elements of the New Deal, Roosevelt was, was incensed, and he thought, you know, like, like the whole idea of modern business practices, or, or industrialism, none of that made sense to the Founding Fathers. None of that existed. And so the idea that we're invoking the Founding Fathers, well, you know, you can't really do that. Um, but once he was attacked by the American Liberty League, they, he did sort of do an invention of himself. And what Roosevelt began to say was that um, as the Founders fought political royalism, you know, they rejected the, the authority of the monarchy, uh, so he was fighting economic royalism and the economic royalists of the American Liberty League. Uh, and, 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 and conversely, what, what the American Liberty League did was they, they invented the founders as modern-day capitalists. Uh, and, and free market capitalists uh, uh, at, at that. And so both of them were kind of um, extrapolating what they saw as principles that were largely inventions and then applying them to their day in defense of their own political positions. The Liberty League, as it evolved, was really an, an extension of the business elite and the business community at the time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they, they were. Um, it was led by um, uh, the Duponts, uh, and um, th- there was a series of brothers that were leading the Dupont Corporation at the time. 
and um, they had connections all through the, the the business elite of the of the New Deal era and and before um, before as well. Uh, and so what they did was they they gathered up all their um, their business friends who were of course concerned about uh, the New Deal and uh, and they began to utilize the power of the print press because many many of um, Many of their friends also either owned newspapers or or uh, had connections to people who owned newspapers uh, to to kind of broadcast their message. And so the fight over the founding fathers during the New Deal really pl- played out in the in the, in the press in, in many ways. Also, not only did they broadcast it in the press, they began to use radio and inc- and, and even tried to incorporate religion into the discussion, primarily through this preacher out in Los Angeles. Yeah, um, the radio was um, not, it wasn't exactly a new form, but it, it really came into prominence in the 19-teens uh, and 1920s especially. And Roosevelt, you'll remember, was a master um, in utilizing radio. Um, he, he, he started the, the, uh, what became known as his fireside chats, these radio addresses where, where he would uh, communicate directly to the American people. And, and very quickly, people on both sides began to see the power of not just print media, but but um, radio and then and then, and then in time television uh, to go to large numbers of people at the same time and uh, to utilize um, a charismatic figure or a speaker or a message in order to uh, to uh, promote your political cause. Talk a little bit about the ways in which this is used today and this whole idea of originalism and the way that ties into much of what we've been talking about. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, today conservatives, um, they they talk about uh, originalism, which means um, to them it's it's an approach to the Constitution. And um, and originalists believe that whatever the founders wrote – and whatever they meant by whatever it is that they wrote, that that is the fixed meaning of the Constitution for all times. And, and uh, to understand why they're, they're, they're so kind of um, focused on this, you have to understand the opposite, which is the liberal view of uh, the living Constitution. Liberals tend to view uh, the, the kind of the principles of the Constitution as, as things that are flexible, that change according to time, and, and that are elaborated by the court through uh, a variety of decisions. Conservatives reject that, and they say that the, the role of the judge is to figure out the meaning of the Constitution as it was meant in 1787, and then that's it, and then they decide cases accordingly. So to do that, they, of course, consult the Founding Fathers, and there, there's, there's a lot of problems with that, of course, because... Um, you know, the founders agreed, at least some of them, on the text of the Constitution, and then other founders rejected the Constitution, um, but nevertheless stayed in politics after the Constitution was accepted. Um, but even those who agreed on the text, they didn't necessarily agree on the meaning, and the founders themselves immediately, almost as soon as the ink was dry, uh, began to fight over whether this policy or this law uh, was in keeping with what they meant by the Constitution. And so the court um, often is in a kind of odd position uh, when they're using originalist uh, uh, principles of cherry-picking cherry different founders, um, using their statements, and then kind of making them stand for the whole. There's also this this idea that while you talk about the living Constitution being a more liberal or a more progressive idea – 
even the underpinnings of conservatism and people like Burke understood that that Constitution and that law in general had to evolve, albeit perhaps in a slower, more measured way, but had to evolve in keeping with the tenor of the times. Yeah, Burke is is a is an interesting figure in American politics because um, you remember that that Burke is is uh, is British, and in uh, the UK they don't have a constitution, and so Burkean principles make a certain amount of sense because, um, in in that context, because you know it's the the, the rules of Parliament which do sort of change, um, but that's not true in the United States. It, we we have a written constitution and we have also a variety of state constitutions, and then we've had amendments to that written constitution that have changed the relationship between the state and the federal governments. And so there is in principle a kind of Burkean transformation um, and living constitution is, is really at heart Burkean. Uh, but many uh, modern day conservatives reject the idea of living constitutionalism because they believe that it's, uh, it, it supports the agenda of liberalism. And, um, and here I think we see the, 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 the real power of this appeal to the founding fathers is that what it what it what it what it does really well is that it is a weapon against change because you can say the founding fathers would not have agreed with that and therefore we shouldn't have do it we, we shouldn't do it and, and i think that's why you see so many modern day conservatives turning to the founding fathers not because they have read deeply in the founding fathers but because it's a way of holding off their uh their political enemies how much of it is still about business and supporting capitalist elites um, it's hard to say. I mean, modern-day conservatism does seem very, very interested in protecting the business class, but um, it is equally um, interested in protecting protecting religious uh, uh, conservative ideas. And um, there you see, um, particularly among some um, evangelical leaders, uh, a concerted attempt to remake the Founding Fathers into evangelical Christians. And so the 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 importance of protecting the business class, um, or the the centrality of protecting the business class, that that is still true of of contemporary conservatism, but but it's combined with this moral concern that we see among uh, the religious right, that it seems to me is just as important. The other point that you make repeatedly is that the founders did not speak with a single voice, and that many of these fundamental issues, even at the core of of these modern debates that we're seeing today, were issues that the founders themselves debated. Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of two problems, as I see it, with with, um, invoking the founders in, in, in modern politics. And the first is that when you say the founding fathers believed... There's almost nothing, and then and then you you come up with with uh, with some something or another. Um, there's almost nothing that you can fill in that would that would be true. I mean, they debated about the meaning of the Constitution. They uh, they had deep disagreements about the relationship of the federal uh, and the state governments. They 
uh, uh, tore themselves apart over whether or not the federal government should be in the business of uh, economic development, which in their time meant establishing a national bank and, and, and building roads and, and so on. And so um, the things that they did agree on uh, were, were things that we're not likely to, to, to look to them uh, today. They, they agreed, for example, that women shouldn't take part in uh, political debate. Uh, they, they agreed uh, largely on the supremacy of white men. Um, and so their agreements are not things that we really turn to them for, and then otherwise they were in uh, disagreement. And then that points to the second problem, which is um, there are many things, and you, you, you alluded to this in your, um, your introduction, there are many things that we look to the Founding Fathers to solve that they simply had no conception of. Um, they had no conception of the modern city, the modern corporation, um, the way in which uh, 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 modern weaponry is deployed in the world. I mean, our world is so vastly different from theirs that uh, as, a, as a practical matter to say, the founding fathers thought, fill in the blank, and so we should do this, that's, a, that's jumping over 200 years, and that's a very hard uh, intellectual maneuver to, to, to pull off. And what it does is it makes the debate, once the Founding Fathers are invoked, it makes the debate intellectually dishonest in many ways today. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I'm, an, I'm an historian, so I, I really do, I care about the past, and I, and I, and I believe in the uh, relevance of the past to the present. Um, but because I'm a historian, uh, I, I, I believe that the past has a certain integrity and that has to be respected. And often what, what I find when I listen to contemporary politicians talk about the Founding Fathers um, is that their, their, their invocations of the Founders lack intellectual integrity. They're, they're, um, it, it has nothing to do with the Founding Fathers or the past and, and uh, almost everything to do with uh, whatever the politician uh, wants. And so really what the Founding Fathers become a lot in contemporary politics are symbols of propaganda, and, um, and I think that's highly problematic. What it also does is it sets up a situation that is really antithetical to problem solving. I mean, if, if you put this just, for example, in the context of business situations, that when businesses set out to solve a problem, it really is addressing the, the, the immediacy of the particular problem and what the potential solutions might be, even if done with a historical perspective. As soon as you get into a situation where you're trying to solve problems and, and just when you can't debate it anymore, invoke the founders, it, you'll never solve anything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it leads to the kind of political dysfunctionality that um, that we see in in contemporary politics. Where, I mean, I, I'm I think probably if you took a poll of members of Congress and asked them a series of questions, whether you know, let's say, um, energy uh, and energy independence is a problem or not, I think many of them would agree on the problems. Um, but because everything is um, so caught up in this debate on the founders, the, the solutions are not forthcoming, and, and no one's discussing how to solve those problems. They're instead asking themselves, what would the founding fathers do? And I think that's, that's not a good position to, to solve the, the, the many issues that are, that are confronting us. Right. I mean, the energy crisis or an energy crisis is not something that the founders had to deal with. 
Exactly, exactly. I mean, th- this is the thing about the founders. You know, they, they, they lived in an era before the Industrial Revolution, you know, and the Industrial Revolution was so utterly transformative of uh, not just American society, but worldwide society. And um, many of our problems are, are really industrial problems, and the founders just simply don't help us solve those. If this is true, though, if this is what's holding back the solution to problems here in America, why aren't we seeing a a wide range and raft of solutions in other countries that don't face this issue? Well, I mean, to take the the energy or the climate change uh, issue that other countries in Europe especially is aggressively addressing – those issues and uh, and and the United States isn't. And I, I wouldn't say though that um, that it's the sole problem. I mean, I, I think that would be uh, too much. You know, there's lots of problems. There's the the kind of the echo chamber of the Facebook era in which everybody just listens to the people that uh, agree with them. There's the kind of the screaming talking heads of, of of cable television. There's the problem of money in politics. You know, there's all kinds of problems. Um, but I do think that the founding fathers and the place of the founding fathers in politics is one of those problems. And I don't think that that is a, uh, something that you see in other countries. You know, If you go to France, I have a hard time believing that you're going to see a kind of uh, this massive political movement um, that starts with a, uh, a feverish call of return to the 1958 French Constitution. I mean, I just don't think you're going to see that. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I don't think, you know, you often see uh, the Magna Carta referenced in contemporary British debate. Uh, but that's, that's uh, uh, utterly commonplace to see Thomas Jefferson quoted um, by both liberals and conservatives in contemporary politics. Which goes to your title. Talk, talk a little bit about the, what's become the Jefferson rule. Yeah, I, I called it the Jefferson Rule because, in, in many ways, um, as, as much as I'm critical of of of, of this uh, this this trend to invoke the founders, it, it actually began with the founders, and in particular, it began with Thomas Jefferson. In disputes with the other founders, um, Jefferson always referred to the true principles of the revolution, and he, he accused his um, his opponents of betraying those those true principles, and when Jefferson won uh, the presidency in, in in 1800, this this pattern of of believing that there was uh, sort of true principles that could be um, uh, used in contemporary politics that kind of got written into the American political tradition. And then once the founding fathers died, in the second and then the third and, and subsequent generations of American politics, they they didn't talk about the true principles of the revolution. Instead, they just talked about the founders. So what I what I mean by the Jefferson rule is that it's a kind of an unspoken rule of American politics that you have to tie your policies in some way to the founding fathers and, and that this um, pattern began with Jefferson himself. How do we begin, do you think, to maybe move beyond this? I don't know. I really don't. Um, I mean, one way of of uh, of Getting a takeaway from my uh, my um, my book is that I simply want to just stop talking about the founding fathers and and and, and, and as you said, start talking about the problems uh, that face us um, and how we might uh, uh, solve those problems and and if and I, and, and I don't know kind of what that looks like exactly, uh, but I'm willing to give it a try. Let's put it like that. 
David Seahot, his book is The Jefferson Rule, How the Founding Fathers Became Infallible and Our Politics Inflexible. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.